The thing that I love about what we're doing right now is that like things are working. Um, it's it, it's a really fun time. We're literally at capacity. Like um, like we're we're not able to hire fast enough right now. Um, we it, it's been an awesome year. Like we we really started to do like marketing and sharing some discounting research and being joining the Twitter game in January. And it's worked really well for us. Um, that uh, picking something super narrow to speak about works really well. Discounting on the welcome series and pop-up, it's pretty much our core. Um, so I know startups are draining, but like net, things are really working right now. So it's a, a different type of motivation from grit versus like the feedback loops are just uh, like delicious at the moment. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun time to be at Fondue. From Amp.io, it's How I DTC This, a show about the legends of e-commerce. Founders, marketers, agencies, tech platforms, on how they pulled it off and how you can too. Warren, thank you for being on here. Uh, excited to chat with you today. Happy to be here, Matt. What's up? What's up? Awesome, man. Well, if you haven't met Oren, he's got an electrifying personality, and I'm excited to have y'all learn from him today. But Oren, just to kick us off, I mean, tell me, how the heck did you get into this? Um, So I got into this because one of my best friends is one of the smartest people I know. Uh, his name is uh, William Herlands. Um, he uh, started and sold an e-commerce brand before. And we always romanticize starting a business together. So first thing when he reached out to me saying, you know, I've got something that I want to do. I told him I was in. Uh, so this is all him. Everything here is all him. Um, uh, and he said he he hated coupon codes and thought there's got to be a better way to discount. And if one out of six e-commerce transactions happens with a coupon code, and if you ask any e-commerce brand, they hate coupon codes. It's a pretty freaking big payments category to build a big business in and like a pretty like meaningful problem to solve. A lot of people have it, and a lot of people have coupon codes. So it uh, yeah. just makes for something super compelling. So this is all because of William Herlands, my co-founder, one of my co-founders. That's awesome. How'd y'all get connected in the first place? So William grew up with my wife, uh, and at family events with his family and my wife's family, we always bonded and built a relationship over the ideas of starting something. And he knew our third co-founder, Abraham, from the New York e-commerce mafia community. And that's how the three of us banded together. Ah, well done. How did you totally. get interested in entrepreneurship stuff in the first place? Sure. So I grew up in Potomac, Maryland. I now live in Tel Aviv, Israel with my wife and two kids. We moved here five years ago. Um, went to nursery school, went to middle school. Yeah, um, <laughs> low average swimmer, don't do well with dairy, whatever. But uh, all those details aside, um, I worked in venture before this. Uh, I was a part of launching a fund called Hanako Ventures in New York and Tel Aviv. We invested a lot in like the e-com stack, which could at times be brands, but more specifically, it would be in tools that they were using. And in Israel, there's a renaissance right now of e-commerce software. As I'm sure many brands and other SaaS vendors know, uh, there's a lot of Israelis building tech uh, for uh, deep sea brands. Um, and there's kind of been like this trend in Israel where the whole economy in many ways is built on the tech community, where Israel is known for cybersecurity. They had one big company, and then the alumni from there or people inspired then started businesses. So you can feel in this very small ecosystem when there's a categorical win, a lot of people will then follow suit, right? So you've got like the founding, you know, founders of the DVC e-com community in Israel 
It could be Yakpo, it could be Luke's, it could be Riskified, it could be Forder, it could be Wix. So that then just bleeds out into this next generation of alumni from there or founders inspired by that. So I found some of the best businesses we invested in at Hanako, Nomogu, and Yakpo. So I was just so exposed and worked closely with those companies that I was inclined to do something in D2C. Then the last thing is a lot of my friends from growing up in the States, you know, sometimes folks go into banking or they'll go into consulting or go into law. A lot of people started e-com brands. So I just accidentally found, I just knew some brand founders giving me access to the first few folks. Uh, so that part was like unintentional, whereas the space became just something that I focused on as a venture capitalist. Well done. Okay. And how did you start Hanako Ventures? I mean, being a VC is super exciting, but how did you get into that? Uh, at Hanako? Um, so I worked at a family office before then. So they'd invest in funds or directly in tech companies, or we bought like the Prince Estate. We bought a uh, big Apple circus. We did all sorts of fun investments. Um, wow. And like, I, I really was always drawn to entrepreneurship and early stage tech. Because these are some of the most optimistic and happy people in the world. And those are wonderful people to work with or hard for. People who like think they're going to make some change in the world, measure progress over time, have patience to know that things are difficult uh, and that they can be better. And like, as opposed to some folks who I love and respect, and I have friends who are lawyers or consultants or, you know, traders, and they, and they really live like by the hours, a lawyer every eight minutes is billable and measuring their progress that way. There's something said about the patient optimist, uh, which are lovely people like you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Warren. It's fun hanging out with you too, man. For you personally, uh, going back. So William comes to you, he says, hey, I've got this fantastic idea. Then what happens? Um, so initially, it, it wasn't necessarily that I was going to jump on board full time. Oh, let me see. Let me help him work through this. This is just another idea from William. But the more time that I spent on it with him, the more compelled I was by it. And I found it was consuming my mind and my time. Then I even went over to our fund, Hanako, and I said, look, I want to try and find a founder for him to work with. I'm going to spend half my time doing this to, hey, I want to transition to be an entrepreneur in residence, to be building this with, you know, William and Abraham from Hanako. Um, and they supported it and were one of the two lead investors in our initial round of funding. Um, so it happened, well, I would say in steps, that was a process that took weeks, not months. That is fast to go from, I'm interested to now I'm on the team. So you, you knew some folks in the industry, you'd been investing, you were able to get some quick customers. Uh, what was the original product? Like, how did it, has it changed a little bit? Has it always been what it is today? Um, yeah. So in truth, our product pivoted really hard. We were initially building something, um, we had a few ideas we were looking at and the initial concept, you know, we were thinking about what we can do in the discount space. Um, what can we do in the refund space? These were some of the things we were considering, but we were always focused on payments between brands and shoppers. Like we just thought that those payments could be slow, opaque, um, and like really important. You build a lot of trust on discounts. You build a lot of trust on getting payments from brands, a refund. So it was always in that space, but we really doubled down on the discount space when we just kept hearing from brands that they just thought coupon codes were the devil. But uh, you, you would see a big emotional reaction that brands have to coupon codes. Um, like brands aren't even aware of how important or how much discounting is hurting their bottom line. Like if you ask brands, how much money did you lose to discounts last year? 
They have no idea. They literally don't know. And like there's a view native to Shopify where you can look at discounts. And like when brands see that that's 15 or 20% of GMV, they're just totally floored. And the irony behind it is if you're a shopper and you're buying most things D2C as opposed to on a marketplace like an Amazon, it means you're brand first and price second because categorically you can get a functional alternative at a fraction of the price. And yet brands are always giving away 10%. But the shopper can get the product at 10% of the cost, not 10% off if they buy it on Amazon. So like it's this really like interesting dynamic of giving the experience of discounting to people who aren't so sensitive to actually needing it or desiring it because the price sensitive folks will typically look to buy outside of D2C Shopify brand websites. It's perfect also, the pitch. Last thing I say sorry for podcasting is um, brands have to optimize for profitability more than ever. Ever like, and some of them don't even know how to spell EBITDA. That they don't even know how much of a problem they have with overly or unnecessarily discounting, or just not taking advantage of the discount moment. You're giving people money. It's awesome, right? Like you should celebrate that. Um, uh, and I think it's just like, yeah, there's ten percent off. You don't have to do anything. Hey, don't right. have to remind you that you're getting 10%. It's like this totally neglected opportunity to build a relationship, create more margin, and like discriminate between like who really is incentivized by the discount and who isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at a minimum, requiring something in exchange for that discount, but better yet, using something like a cashback. So there you go. It's great. All right, you are an intense founder. I mean, I was on a panel with you the first time I met you. You said, hey, let me introduce you to these four people. Like, I was just blown away by your energy. How do you do that? What are your, what is, what's your personal routine like? Maybe productivity hacks or like, how do you stay so juiced up? Um, I don't really have a hack. This is a little bit of a disposition. Um, it's, uh, I get excited about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I know I get like little dopamine hits from uh, like these little intros that can impact other people because I know how appreciative I am when I receive them. Absolutely. Um, and it's like just nice to be able to make that like small impact for someone else. Um, so I won't go as deep as to say karma because it's almost like self-serving. Like it's it's meaningful if I can like make a small impact for someone, especially on something that like I'm totally empathetic to. Like we're both out here hustling, trying to build businesses to support the people who've joined us, who invest in us, or to support those who use our products, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I just totally get the hustle that we're both going through. So if I can make an impact for you, it's great. And then selfishly in like the small bubble, like these reputations, especially online, matter. So like uh, for us to be able to help each other out, it's just this pendulum of goodness that just keeps building up over time. Absolutely. Yep. Completely agree. Uh, but no like morning routines, 5 a.m., like uh, certain things like getting things done or any apps you love to use to stay organized? Uh, no, I have absolutely no <laughs> other than like you yes. just have to make good choices each day uh, as a founder to make a big impact. Um, Love that. and in terms of waking up early, I have a two and a half year old and a six month old. So, uh, uh, they've got me covered on how to have a, to look forward to waking up and to wake up early. Just making it happen. 
full speed ahead. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one thing that like uh, one of like the, the company values that we have is like always know what you're optimizing for, and like really know what's that one or two things, and if this activity or you know meeting doesn't directly serve that, like try not to do it. But as long as you really know what you're optimizing for, could be customer growth, could be revenue growth, could be impact for customer, whatever that main thing is that you're trying to achieve that month or that quarter. Just to be cognizant of that and just always ask, it does this support what I'm optimizing for? Yeah. Obviously, quarterly goals, annual goals, three-year goals. Do you follow anything like traction or any of those kind of principles? Yeah. I mean, um, we just have like some top-line metric uh, that we optimize for. And it's just that we're all cognizant of that and uh, that there might be some sub-metrics that support that main metric. But if you can't justify why this helps out, just don't freaking do it. Love it. Laser focus. All right, so let's go back a little bit. So it's you, William, Abraham. You guys get maybe an MVP together, start getting some customers. Where's it going from there? Like, when do you start hiring? Who are you hiring? How's the team growing? Tell me a little bit about that initial growth. Sure. So the three of us, while we were still validating where what problem in particular within between brands and shoppers that, you know, wound up being the, uh, on the discount space with cashback. Um, um, we just had a lot of brands who were engaged and wanted to like us to materialize what we were envisioning. Uh, so we were able to collect that to raise about $10.5 million uh, to start off the business. Uh, and with that, we had really great assets to recruit an incredible dev team, particularly out here in Israel. Uh, where, like I said, you've got folks who've been a part of great companies like Wix and Riskified that were just able to poach senior and junior folks from there. And then they could bring not only how to scale big tech, but specifically e-com and payments tech. And then we can recruit, you know, some folks who didn't come from the industry, but we had that institutional knowledge. So we were able to, like, make a couple of awesome senior hires right off the bat. Um, so we've always had a big dev team and we will always have a big dev team. We just want to ship things quickly. Brands have specific features that they want, and we want these features to be applied to many others. Um, so we totally overinvest in dev. Like, I think we're super generous on comp, and we're super generous on the ratio of the team that's doing dev, because that's got to be our superpower. Yeah, focusing on the product and the rest of the problems will kind of solve themselves. Yeah, we just want to ship quickly. Like, if an important brand asks for an important feature, we want to tell them there are three developers working on this tomorrow. Yes. Love that. Okay. And then how do you, how'd you go to market in the beginning? I mean, I, you, you mentioned before, you know, you had some friends, but uh, tell me about how you're selling and, and how you're, you're making these deals happen. Totally. Yeah. So initially it's hand-to-hand -hand combat, founder-led sales, you know, no reputation, no nothing like that. So like it, kind of the network has like diminishing marginal returns. If I go to Matt and you're a homie of mine and I say, can you do an intro or two? Maybe you're willing to do it. I don't think you'll necessarily be willing to do five and I can't go back to you again or I can, maybe I have to trade with you. So like you would do some like small hacks like that just to get the initial users. You do everything you can to make those people love you. And what I would say is like, I'd really play on the fact that I'm a founder and state like, Hey, when this goes well, I'm going to ask you for three intros after you're pleased with the product because it will help my company grow. And I'll only then be comfortable to make you use your social capital to state, I believe in what Orrin's doing because it works well, not I like him as a person. I, I today on every sales call will set that social expectation. People are willing to help, especially if you give them the heads up. Like 
hey, I'm going to ask for your business at the end of this call. Hey, I'm going to ask you for three intros after this. Who comes to mind? Right? Uh, so I'd like always set that expectation. Uh, the next is like people complain about their problems online in public and private forums, not like fancy Facebook and Slack groups, but public Reddit threads and public Twitter threads. So whatever the problem that you're solving, you just type it in and you could DM someone who complained about this three years ago. They'll feel seen for that problem. Um, and if you just drop the founder card, hey, I'm a founder, or if it's to another founder, founder to founder, people like spending time with founders. So like leverage that. Now that doesn't scale, um, but um, it's a hell of a way to get to a point to have a foundation to then build something to scale on top of. Absolutely. What about you, Matt? How did you get your first couple of customers? Same thing. I mean, I think founder-led sales for sure. And just saying, hey, this is what we're building. You take a look at it. I think you know we're solving a real problem. And then, like you said, once we can help some folks from there, we, we haven't done really any marketing, which is crazy. It's really just been, we perform really well for our clients. And then they say, oh, well, you should meet so-and-so and you should meet so-and-so. And I think exactly like you said, we're just really trying to treat people right and take care of them. And I think if we do that enough, it will continue to scale. We do need to now focus on scaling. We build a product that has to scale to thousands of, of customers. We're on yeah. our way, but I, I think you're right. Like we've got to like unlock a lot more growth. And I think yeah. the more and more I sit back and look at it, focusing on the product seems to be the best way to go about doing it. So super aligned right. with what you're saying. Cool. Yeah, man. Why fondue? I'm sure everybody asks you this. Why did you call it fondue? So the first thing is like when your funds are due. So like, uh, frankly, someone on the Israeli team who like doesn't have awesome English kind of like confused the terms. Um, and so that was one. Two is the team really liked it. Like three is um, it's generic enough when we were early enough, whatever the company winds up being, it's, you know, this arbitrary word. And it winds out it's great for small talk. Uh, right. When I say fondue, do you think of cheese or chocolate? Oh, interesting. Europeans say cheese, Americans say chocolate. Oh, one time this guy spoke about meat gravy as a fondue set, right? That's like totally harmless and fun. Um, dude, I'm lactose intolerant. I don't eat fondue. Uh, I've like really almost never had it in my life. Um, it's twice I'm speaking about my dairy sensitivity. It's weird. But um, um, yeah, what about you? How do you wind up naming your company? Oof. Well, it was originally Exit Intel before and... Exit intent is not what makes our product valuable. And in fact, we had to totally rebuild the product because we worked with too many large brands and we customized it in too many ways and I didn't stick close enough to the product. And I think that kind of held us back from scaling. And so about two years ago, I just said, all right, enough. We've got to totally rebuild. It took a while to rebuild, but we got to take everything that we learned doing this for years and put it into what is now Amped. And I was looking for the right name for it and I mean, like you, I'm just pretty fired up all the time. And I just, I think I was in the shower one day. And I was just like, man, I'm so amped about what we're doing. This product's going to be so good. And I was like, all right, it's amped. So that's, that's how I came up with it. Nice. So uh, back to what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. You've been doing a lot of research on Welcome Series. I've seen some of the reports you're putting together. I know we're talking about doing some things together, but what are you finding? What, what insights have you found from all this research? Totally, yeah. So so for context, look, we have the ambitions and we're happy to replace every coupon code, ads, influencers, and affiliates. But right now, like we totally believe we're the best discount for pop-ups and welcome series. 
Firstly, this is like systematic volume. This can drive for some brands 30, 40, 50% of their revenue, right? We typically see it at around at least 15 to 20. So this is like a real amount of GMV. Um, and also people neglect optimizing their pop-up and welcome series flows um, often. They feel, oh, I did an A-B test and that's good enough. But I think about this as like a, it's an asymptote where you infinitely approach, you know, completing it, half the distance to the goal in footballing and never crossing the plane. I think this is meaningful because firstly, there is diminishing marginal returns. There is a point where the incremental value is not worth the lift. Um, but like we find this is a place that people always, oh yeah, always want to get back to it. Yeah, it's on my to-do list. Yeah, but it's it really can be not a set it and forget it, but a set it and enjoy it, right? Um, where it's not promotional by nature, like a Facebook ad or, you know, throwing darts in the dark on TikTok. This is measurable. There's awesome tools like Amped, like the Clavios, the Postscripts, the Attendants of the world, who can measure the impact that you have with all of these permutations. Um, um, so we just think this is something that is uh, totally neglected, but known that it's neglected, just like people's discount problems. So one, two, we love to do this for the pop-up and welcome series. And it's the best place to build trust. Because if we do an A-B test of a cashback versus coupon code, you know, your amps, your postscripts, your clavios, your attentives can say why the test was good and why it wasn't instead of like in order to trying to guess attribution from a Facebook ad. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we see that every day. Folks just put up their pop-up and say, all right, great. I, you know, I checked the box. I turned on the free pop-up. It's a box. It's 10% on it and don't really think about it. So like you said, hitting it from both angles of how can we make this thing perform better, but also if they're doing cash back. It just contributes to the bottom line. So, and, and you've told me this a couple of times, but remind me again, the economics of how the cash back works out. So only a certain number of people redeem it, all that stuff. Yeah. So the cash back is like a retroactive discount where you pay full price knowing you're eligible to claim it. And some folks won't claim it. And that's like totally fine. It's kind of like what we said, not everyone's price sensitive. So instead of giving coupons to shoppers who don't care for it, but will effortlessly enjoy it, to the margin loss of the brand, some folks won't claim it. Then when they do, they'll take it either as cash or a greater value of site credit. What we see as a baseline is about 50% of shoppers never claim a discount. I'll say that again, about 50% of shoppers, despite receiving push notifications, don't claim their cash back, which means that you're adding, you know, contribution margin half the time. About 20% of people are taking site credit, that's called LTV, and 30% are claiming cash. So what I would argue is, if you're only paying this out a third of the time, you can discount more aggressively, which, you know, you can totally, you have transformational changes with making an interactive pop-up, but like also having a steeper discount value works. Yeah. We've seen it. Yeah, absolutely. But typically people can't afford it. They feel like they're going to go because everyone's taking it. Right. But what if you learn 70% of shoppers don't claim the cash? That's massive. And on the LTV part where you were talking about if they do the store credit, how, how tell me a little bit about that. How does that work out? And, and you said there's 20% of folks will take you up on the store credit. Yeah. So let's say you make a $100 purchase. You're eligible for 20% cash back. And then you claim it instead of 20% as cash, you take 25 as site credit. It's up to the brand how they want to leverage that. Regardless if the brand's using fondue, they ought to be segmenting site credit holders, reminding them monthly, don't forget you've got money with us. But we see a lot of retention marketers not doing that. 
So here it'll just segment and create a site credit holder list of those who redeem their welcome series discount as cash back, as site credit rather. And then you just remind them during perhaps a full price period, or you send them to a LP of your second best product, you know, and you do a direct response page from an email. Um, it's up to you. Or you can enjoy the unspent but claimed site credit, right? That's also awesome. So it's totally up to the brand what they're optimizing for. And from your perspective, you know, we're doing some mutual clients together, but from all of the accounts you've seen, what's like the perfect setup? I mean, who's who's dialed this in that's got the perfect kind of cash back, store credit setup? I'd probably point to a brand like a True Classic or Barstool, who've both been scaling this, specifically Barstool. They've got a family of brands. Um, they just totally understand the value of the site credit, aggressively retargeting these folks. When I say aggressively, you're telling people that they have money right? Um, don't forget to spend it. Um, and, and their margins enable them to make the site credit value really, really juicy, where they're really able to get more LTV faster, um, to get that like CAC payback, not only positive, like break even, but super positive. Um, the one thing that I would say that I think is impacting pop-ups and welcome series, and I'm curious for your take on this, Matt, is direct response and like custom landing pages. Typically, I find people aren't having pop-ups appear on them because they have the specific journey in mind. Where if you're a multi-SKU merchant who does a direct response Facebook ad and it's to sell a specific SKU, they want to reduce friction. You know, you go right to checkout. There's no cart. There's no browse other products even. How do you see the growth of direct response and custom landing pages impacting your core business and our core use case of pop-ups and welcome series? I think it depends on how much they're leveraging these landing pages. Like of a percentage of traffic, how big of, a, of an effort is it? If it's 100,000 visitors a month and they're driving 10,000 visitors to the landing page or even five, I mean, it, it just depends on how much traffic they're sending there. And then if they make it off of that landing page, then I think you have the opportunity. But if they're right in that conversion flow, I think not interrupting them, but leveraging something like an exit in 10 or an activity if you can. But most brands for direct traffic or traffic that's coming from social, things like that, probably showing pop-ups on entrance. And I know there's like different schools of thoughts on that, but I look at it as if we're going to wait until much further in the journey and it's a visitor that typed in the URLs coming to the site, it's just more shots on goal to be able to show them a pop-up after a few seconds they've been there versus waiting until much later and missing out on some of that opportunity. And it's not a huge lift to be able to close it out. So what do you love about what you're doing right now? Um, the thing that I love about what we're doing right now is that like things are working. Um, it's, it, it's a really fun time. We're literally at capacity. Like, um, like we're, we're not able to hire fast enough right now. Um, we, it, it's been an awesome year. Like we, we really started to do like marketing and sharing some, discounting research and being joining the Twitter game in January. And it's worked really well for us. Um, that, uh, picking something super narrow to speak about works really well. Discounting on the welcome series and pop-up. It's pretty much our core. Um, so I know startups are draining, but like net things are really working right now. So it's, uh, a different type of motivation from grit versus like the feedback loops are just uh, like delicious at the moment. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun time to be out fun too. Yes. 
That's awesome. Well cool. done, man. I, I can tell you're fired up about it. Sounds like it's been it's been a really fun ride. So yeah. thanks for doing this, being on here. And, and and also pump math to do this again. We're about to be publishing. We've been uh, benchmarking and indexing like the top 700 Shopify sites, what they're doing on their pop-ups, how long for it to appear, is there a funnel, what's the incentive. Um, so when we're, we're going to collect some insights from you, Matt, to include in that report. And then like we want to, we'll do another one of these, but we'll go through the report itself to get your feedback as the pop-up guru. We think about discounts, you think about pop-ups. Um, so it'll be a lot of fun to, to, to riff on that report together. Yeah, I'm excited to work on that with you. All right, Warren, thank you for being on here, sir. Totally. I love you. You're my best friend, Matt. I'll see you soon. <laughs> see you, brother. Bye.